Hello, and welcome to Lodestar's Lending Leaders. I'm Jim Paolino, founder and CEO of Lodestar Software Solutions. On this podcast, I'm going to be talking to leaders in the mortgage and real estate industries. Our goal is to talk about current events, interesting things from their end of the industry, and anything else that we feel is fascinating. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's Lodestar's Lending Leaders. I'm really excited to have on a good industry friend as our guest this week, Roy George. He's SVP, Head of Compliance, as well as a Diversity and Inclusion Officer at Taylor Morrison Home Funding, one of the major home builders in the country. Um, so really excited to talk about all things construction, industry related, and I'm sure a host of other things that we'll, we'll get to. So Roy, thanks so much for coming on today. Hey, thanks for having me, Jim. Uh, I don't know if I'm uh, the, the, the greatest for the construction side of the conversation, but being a uh, mortgage person in that world, I can yeah. definitely speak to that piece, yeah. I think you probably know more about it than the average person for sure. So I think we can certainly touch on there, but I, I don't know if, you know, I'm sure like most 10 year olds growing up, you were dreaming of either being a shortstop for the Yankees or a chief compliance officer. So we'd love to hear about kind of your, your evolution to, to this end of the business. So funny. I actually didn't have a dream to be any of those things. I was an artist or an artsy kind of a kid growing up, mm -hmm. comic books, drawing, those kinds of things were my thing. Um, and so I actually went to college originally for architecture. So it does kind of fall in line with home building, right? I mean, yeah. I went to go design homes at my, some of my first work were, uh, were things like that, building model homes, uh, residential types of things that I was working in with CAD and things like that. And then by the end of freshman first semester, I was like, hey, uh, I want to do something that isn't as uh, time consuming as this. So what's easy? And then by the time it was graduation time, it was like, hey, my grades aren't so good. How do I get out of here? And they said, well, you can go into communications. I said, well, I'm actually really good at that. So, um, so I did, and that's, that's how I got out. But um, I, I always wanted to be an architect. I still draw today. Yeah, oh, wow. Yeah. Is it like building related or is it just kind no, of- No, no, actually, yeah. uh, I can freehand draw. I, I draw faces, I draw cartoons, uh, all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah. Well, it's nice. They always say you need to have the hobby that like has nothing to do with what your day to day kind of uh, <laughs> life is. So I, I'm, I'm still working on that uh, to figure out. I think I don't know if whiskey drinking technically counts. So I need to need to hey. figure out a different one there. Um, a nice Macallan 12 on the rocks never hurt yeah, anybody. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, almost there. Almost end of uh, end of the week for that. But um, and then so going from communications, um, how does that what does that do with getting into the mortgage industry and then particularly really getting into the, the compliance angle. So interesting. Um, I got into the mortgage industry on the servicing side of the equation while I was still in college and mostly mm -hmm. just to pay for things. Um, mm -hmm. I needed the, I needed the, the cash. I needed to be able to pay for school books, things like that. So I started working for a uh, Mellon Mortgage back then, uh, mm -hmm. servicing platform. Um, I think Chase bought them yeah. shortly after I got there. So I was working mm -hmm. for Chase and uh, I was making phone calls, collecting payments, things like that, customer service. Uh, over the years, it changed over and uh, I was on the ops side for a long time, uh, started processing loans, then started mm -hmm. managing the processing teams, eventually started to... Uh, handle a much, much larger area. I was running the, uh, 
the end-to-end operations, East Coast to West Coast, by the time I left my employer in 2008. And by left, I mean, you know, let go during implosion. And yep. so, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, when you it was over, 2008. Yeah. yeah, you know, great mm-hmm. year. Yeah. When it was over, I, I said to myself, I, I want to be in mortgages. I just don't know where I want to be in mortgages. And I got hired as a consultant to do some mm-hmm. work uh, with a compliance team, but they wanted to know the origination uh, side of it so that they could build out some new things. And then Dodd-Frank came into play and I thought to myself, you know, eventually I want to become the owner or the president, the, something like of that nature of a mortgage company. And I said to myself, let me learn this compliance side of the business so that I can marry the two, mm-hmm. you know, sets of experience I have to create that, that person. And uh, that's always been my goal. That's mm-hmm. how I got into compliance. Mm-hmm. And I feel like so often it's interesting that you kind of opted in to learn about compliance. Cause I think so often, especially with people who are running mortgage companies, the sales background is, is typically what you see or maybe ops. So with what do you feel people get wrong about compliance when they view it as a necessary evil or, or something that, okay, we have to check a box. So I think a lot of the times what people get wrong uh, is not keeping the compliance people or the compliance portion of the business, you know, right side to the business operation itself. Mm-hmm. A lot of the times it's exactly what you said, right? Oh, we made a mistake. Now, how do we fix it? Rather than let's just not make the mistake by putting some guardrails in. Because I've had both sets of experience, mm-hmm. I'm really good about understanding where the rules and regulations begin and end and mm-hmm. how to kind of fit myself in the middle so that customer experience and the, the loan process is the, uh, the primary driver and making sure we stay in a good place from a regulatory perspective or a state examination right. perspective it is important, but is, is mm-hmm. being covered because of the things that we put in place, not that it's the primary driver of anything. Right. And going back to kind of your, your communications experience, which I'm sure comes into handy, how do you communicate that when you're dealing with a sales manager, someone who is just looking at compliance as something slowing down his team from making everyone money? Sure. So right now, I'm lucky to be working with a number of people that mm-hmm. are really pro, how do we get it done, Roy, rather than, hey, stop trying to get in my business, Roy, right? So those are, those are two different kinds of people. And I've had to deal with both of those kinds of people over the years. Mm-hmm. I've got a really good group right now. They're very compliance friendly. They want to make sure that they're in the right space. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I do in a rare occasion run into someone who maybe you know, stuck in a space where they feel like, hey, compliance is just here for whatever reason that, that they have in their head, uh, I, I take some time to really go over the whys. And I think explaining why it needs to be there uh, helps the business line to understand if we need to make a process change, if we need to make uh, some kind of policy change. Right. It's really being able to get the business lines to understand the why. Because the why is the hardest part. You know, at mm-hmm. the end of the day, Nobody wants to understand a regulation because sometimes they're just overbearing and mm-hmm. eh, let's take that back all the time. They're overbearing. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
I think it's important to keep that in context, right? Because it's not Roy from compliance telling you to do something. It's this regulation XYZ telling right. you to do something. So I think right. communicating that and being more of the messenger um, makes more sense. In, in terms of looking at that alphabet soup of regulations right now, what which one takes up most of your time at the moment? What's the biggest concern? Well, I mean, you know, up until about a week ago, the biggest uh the biggest change wasn't a regulation change, but it was the uh, move over to the new loan application. So mm-hmm. it's been my primary focus, making sure that uh, I'm working hand in hand with the IT and project management staff to kind of uh, mm-hmm. ensure an easy and seamless transition for our teams. Uh, also, outside of that, I've been really honed in on what changes the CFPB may make uh, and some they're already making Mm -hmm. and how that's going to affect things. I think I see a lot of um, items that were prior to the last administration coming back. Mm -hmm. And so we'll see how that fares when, uh, or we'll see how everyone fares as those changes Mm -hmm. may not be changes, but reversions back to Mm -hmm. what used to be. What are some areas where you're seeing that? So UDAP is one, right? We just saw an article Mm -hmm. come out two days ago or yesterday about uh, making sure that uh, we are focused on, uh, uh, let's say, putting the the, uh, the, the CFPB back in a space where they're able to provide civil money penalties for what they deem to be UDAP violations. Another really interesting one in the last couple of days has been the focus on fair lending and what an interesting, interesting piece, right? Mm-hmm. They, the rule has been no discrimination uh, from a fair lending perspective, no discrimination. Mm-hmm. And the word is um, um, sex, right? They're meaning whether male or female, right? That's what mm-hmm. they meant when they wrote it. And the CFPB released a notice the other day that was about gender identity, and so no mm-hmm. discrimination based on gender identity. So they're elaborating on the rule or regulation uh, without mm-hmm. actually getting a rule or regulation changed, right? So that's, that's interesting. They're not, mm-hmm. they're not getting the law changed, but their own interpretation is making it so that it includes gender identity. And honestly, I feel like uh, you know, that's a great thing, but mm-hmm. uh, it, from, a, from the justice standpoint of this is what it says versus this is what you're saying it says, that's a really interesting view and it really reminiscent of the Cordray CFPB mm-hmm. versus the uh, Craninger CFPB. Right. They're kind of using the, they're expanding the definition of the rule without necessarily creating new legislation. Right. They saw right. things. And I, I saw that as well as the um, kind of their heightened awareness um, on fair lending, specifically with sexual orientation as yeah. well. And I think, that's going to, I mean, that's going to be really interesting because fair lending has so many different components to it. And I like to think that most companies out aren't, are not out there necessarily trying to do something that is unfair by design. But I think there's so many traps that people can fall into with some of the ways that they have things together. Um, to give you an example, um, the way we see it a lot in our compliance business is um, LO comp, right? If we, I've listened to calls where an LO talks, talks to someone who has 10% down, can pretty much get a conventional loan, all of a sudden they're pitching FS, um, FHA, 
right? Is that because of their commission? Like, is that why exactly are they doing that there? So I don't know what, uh, I'd be really curious to hear what you feel are those types of systemic things at companies that can get them in trouble, especially with fair lending and have that kind of unconscious bias. Well, so I'm lucky enough to work in an atmosphere where, uh, you know, our uh, pipeline is really kind of coming to us from mm -hmm. who's buying a house, right? Mm -hmm. Versus uh, retail atmospheres where you may run into situations like that. So I think the focus on LO Comp over the last two years has been really well received. I know a lot of people in the industry have been trying to make sure that they adjust to it. And, and, and to be 100% right mm -hmm. now, I think the last three years, everybody really had it pretty down packed. They've been avoiding anything yeah. that could really be looked at as mm -hmm. switching for the purposes of an increased commission. I really don't hear that kind of a thing mm -hmm. in the compliance boards or the, the message threads out there. I, don't, I really don't hear that. So, mm -hmm. so uh, I think the industry in, in general has done a good job at avoiding that unconscious bias uh, application to uh, their, their customer base. Mm -hmm. Are there other areas where you feel like it can be improved? Like what are kind of the, the pitfalls or if you were to go into a new organization that you don't know anything about and you're now their compliance officer, what are the types of things that you would start to investigate um, to determine kind of that level of risk? So I'll tell you a piece of advice I give to anybody going into a new mm -hmm. company in a, in a compliance capacity. First and foremost, those first 60 to 90 days are just to observe. You, you have to. Because if yeah. you're not going to sit there and take a look at what everyone's mm -hmm. doing first, you, you can't make suggestions. Going mm -hmm. in on day one and saying, hey, you need to do X, Y, or Z, right. that's not going to go well. And that goes back mm -hmm. to the question you said earlier about how do you get everybody to work well with you from a communication standpoint? Well, sometimes the communication tool is using your ears and not your mouth, right? right. So uh, that's a big piece for that. As far as what else could we do or what else are we seeing uh, that, that uh, is really driving behavior like that, I honestly feel that after the last couple of years, we're not seeing that. And if we are, they're one-off, smaller mm -hmm. companies, uh, people who are not on radars that, that, that get away with you know, something that they may not even know that they're getting away with because they don't think there's anything wrong with it. A good example is uh, I know... When I see some brokers that do business, I see uh, some loan officers at those brokers' offices who say, uh, I don't have to send an LE because I'm third-party originating and the lender is going to send it for me, right? Well, well, you know, then you take your continuing education classes and there's the contradiction that says, no, you need to send an LE even right. if you're a broker, right? So these are the types of small items that you can really uh, hone in on to make detail level changes that'll help the organization. But again, I don't see huge systemic type items uh, in my organization or, right. or almost anywhere that I'm reading right mm -hmm. now. Well, then how about, how are you looking at things kind of data wise to, to prove that out in terms of, is everyone getting quoted the same rate, right? Like what are the types of things you're doing to make sure that those aspects of it are, are following? So from uh, from a that's a fair lending question and right. uh, really it's it's about match pair testing right so you'll see mm -hmm. a lot of compliance companies come in and they'll do a match pair testing type of fair lending evaluation for you mm -hmm. what they're doing is they're taking your data out of your system 
and they're mm-hmm. really taking the time to identify people who are identical or as close to identical as possible, credit profile, uh, mm-hmm. work profile, income profile, et cetera. And then going down to the loan terms to say, you know, were they offered the same loan terms? Mm-hmm. And if they weren't, you know, how could that be if they have identical profiles, right? So match pair mm-hmm. testing is a really good way to tackle that exact type of scenario. Mm-hmm. And that, I guess, to your point, is more likely to catch those one-offs in those cases where the same couple with everything similar in terms of credit score profile, house socioeconomic, but a different demographic gets a completely different rate or their appraisal is completely different. Like an um, article that was run on MB- MSNBC lately, right? So are all these different um, aspects. And when, when a situation like that is caught um, or, you know, attention gets comes to it what what should the next steps be in the industry obviously if it you know either industry at a whole less so than your specific organization sure so i mean you know if it's a one-off then it's simply about using your compliance management system properly identifying Mm -hmm. it yeah figuring out how you're going to train an individual and getting them into a better place on how to Mm -hmm. do it the next time right the incidents already happened you're not going to be able to erase that but you can correct it going forward. So that's in the situations where it's a Mm one-off. If you do find from your testing that you do have a systemic issue where you have maybe a handful of underwriters or a handful of whoever they may be that are continuously making a decision that may not be based on strictly the credit profile or the borrower Mm -hmm. profile and may be leaning on something else, then, you know, the escalation there is to bring it to someone like myself or mm-hmm. bring it to uh, an executive team, or inform the president right away and see what the strategy is going to be to address that. Uh, those are the initial next steps. Naturally, depending upon where that goes, it can go, you know, a number of ways, but, uh, mm-hmm. but, you know, yeah. we always hope that it's nothing more than a one-off and it's a right. good opportunity to train someone. Well, then I think you make the point, too, of using the data to inform you if that is a one-off or that is a trend. And I'm sure with match pair testing, you can pretty quickly see when something becomes a trend versus a more isolated incident. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you talked, it, it seems like you talked about dealing with these problems reactively, which I'm sure is a huge part of what you need to do as a compliance officer, right? Something becomes a problem now we have to deal with it. Um, with these types of issues, how do you feel you can work on them proactively? And I don't know if this is kind of a good segue into what you're doing as the diversity and inclusion officer as well, because when people are able to kind of see themselves going through the process, it might be a little, I don't know if that's something that can hopefully prevent these isolated incidents. So I like fair lending assessments for both the reactive and proactive uh, mm-hmm. steps you can take, right? First off, you're doing that every two years, every year, every quarter, whatever Mm -hmm. you're doing it, you're going to be able to say, hey, this is what I see has already happened. You can also say, these are trends I'm seeing that aren't an issue yet, but could possibly become one. And that's that's your proactive step to put some, you know, process changes in place or, Mm -hmm. you know, talk to the business lines about how they can adjust for that. Also, I think when you're looking at Uh, regression testing or second line of defense type things, which is what your compliance teams are supposed to do and what they are, Mm -hmm. you're always in that it's already happened kind of scenario. You can always put procedures and policies in place and help the business line define those, but you can't make anybody follow them 
Mm. Um, you know, unless you're hanging over their shoulder every day and, uh, right. you know, no that's not that. the, that's not the game. <laughs> mm-hmm. So then in terms of looking at things a little bit more proactively, how do you, what are the types of things you do to put those in place to a way that people view it as a value add to the organization? Sure. I like to do a couple of things, right? So mm-hmm. I have, uh, what I call a trending data analysis, Mm-hmm. I meet with the business line leaders once a month to go over items I'm seeing when I aggregate everything, right? So first line of defense, quality assurance type mm-hmm. information, uh, post-closing quality control information, uh, warehouse line information, regression testing information, put it all together. And now you're taking on a much bigger scope of loan data. And you're saying to the business line, hey, look, we've looked at five different areas, four different areas. And we're mm-hmm. able to see some similarities. How do we go about addressing mm-hmm. that? It's a really good way to get ahead of anything that may grow into something you don't want to deal with later. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely a recommendation that I make to, to everybody in the industry, especially when you're at a mid-sized lending institution. It seems like data can be your best friend in these cases, right? It of like, really let's back is. up. Yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, obvious, you talk about some ways you can use data from a compliance perspective. In your role as diversity and inclusion officer, are you trying to utilize data in a similar way to make those points in those conversations? So it's funny, when I teach some of the uh, things that I teach in regards to uh, diversity and inclusion, or when I'm just speaking about it in general, mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of what is being said is based off of data that's gathered from the industry or data mm-hmm. that's gathered from different agencies. And then, and then I formulate a lot of my, my content from that. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I don't think there's a part of the business anymore that isn't really, really uh, based on being data-driven, not data-driven, right. but being data-driven. So, you know, I think that's a, it's an important piece that everybody in the industry should be looking at. It really talks to how are we going to move into digitization if we're mm. not relying on that data in, mm. in a much larger sense? And there's a lot of push over the last couple of right. years to digitize and do that kind of thing. I mean, that's how I met you. Yeah, and, exactly. you know, so mm-hmm. that's a big, that's a big push. And from a DNI perspective, uh, you know, we look at companies that provide information on our employee base. We look at companies that provide information mm-hmm. on what kind of uh, demographics are in the area who's, who's living around where your offices are, you know, how can you hire diversely? How can you mm-hmm. bring a diverse group of people into your, into your uh, company and still remain, you know, um, I, I guess I want to say still remain in a space of integrity, right? So that mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot that you can do with that data, but you have to be willing to go through that data from a yeah. DEI perspective sometimes that gets cumbersome. Sometimes you got to make a mm. whole new group of people just to do that. And mm. then that's sometimes the deterrent for it. So, mm-hmm. And when someone's looking at that and kind of, you know, seeing all of the work that's involved in getting that data together and making those decisions, like how do you represent the benefit and the why of that, of not only is this the right thing to do, but this is actually what the ROI is going to be from doing sure. this. I think that kind of information has been shown quite a bit from companies like McKinsey and mm-hmm. uh, people who do actually gather data and provide that kind of thing. So, you know, 
many studies have shown that if you have a diverse workforce, you're going to get uh, uh, immediate return on your ROI. Why? Because you have mm-hmm. diversity in thought and diversity in thought is what drives that. Mm-hmm. Also, when you have uh, management teams that look like your employee base, you have uh, loyalty to the organization because people mm-hmm. see themselves in what they see in management and they mm-hmm. see that track to get there. So you're maintaining or re- retaining that diverse employee base with the notion that they have the ability to climb a ladder where they are and they're happy with that kind of thing. So all of this data, all of that action uh, is really what makes, makes DEI from a hiring recruiting standpoint, Mm -hmm. really, really work. I I think there's quite a bit more to it when you're thinking about how to utilize that data and where to, uh, you know, to uh, leverage that data. But from a recruitment and a hiring standpoint, that's that's mm-hmm. one that I, I focus on a lot when I'm looking at this kind of stuff. Those are your best um, yeah. ways to use it. And obviously a lot more to get into on this topic than we could possibly cover in, in, in this conversation now. I know it, it's a very complex. Uh, I like the way that you're steering everything because the truth is, question yeah. one, when you first asked me, and this one just now, uh, I was sitting there thinking to myself, wow, uh, the whole conversation is going to be this because yeah. it could be hours of uh, just this topic. Now, we're, we're, keeping, we're keeping you on your toes right now. So <laughs> one, one, one last question kind of on the, the DNI um, perspective, though, and you alluded to um, looking at the demographics of an area and obviously a diverse workforce in Sioux Falls, South Dakota is going to look different than in Atlanta. Um, right. So how do you take the area into context and then also update your hiring practices to get that diverse workforce? Well, the right answer to that is carefully, but yeah, the practical answer is, you know, take a look at what your MSA or your metropolitan statistical information looks like Mm -hmm. and really understand what is diversity for you in that area. If your Mm -hmm. office is in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and it tends to have a particular demographic of people, then you know you need to expand what your criteria is, right? Mm-hmm. Is it people with uh, communication degrees? Is it people with business degrees? Is it people with something else, right? There, there are ways to go about looking at diversity um, from more than just the, mm-hmm. I guess, the mainstream topics, right? Like race or sex, you know, right. gender. Th- those are those are. Um, the mainstream topics, but there are multiple ways to look at diversity where you're not just looking at those things. Mm-hmm. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And that's one thing as I do more hiring, trying to be conscious of, of where are you putting those applications up and what, what does that tr- lead to, depending on if there are certain universities you're putting in applications or even certain websites or anything like that of really thinking of how can you broaden that scope. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, take the first simple step, right? Uh, diversity, when you're talking about uh, any area, if you have a particular uh, racial um, mm-hmm. makeup, then maybe immediately you start looking at, well, what's my male to female uh, comparison here? If you mm-hmm. have, uh, you know, an area where you have 60% um, mm-hmm. females and 40% males, then, you know, you have, uh, and you have, or you feel like your company's representing that, then maybe you're looking at something else Mm -hmm. Uh, eventually. And you got to start somewhere, right? You got to start somewhere looking at something. And eventually maybe Mm -hmm. you have a program that's robust enough to look at 
right. everything holistically. Mm-hmm. But I don't think as an industry, and not just our industry, I don't think as a mm-hmm. whole, the economy is in a space of getting there yet. They, all yeah. industries aren't there yet. So, mm-hmm. so, you know, take your first steps, whatever they are. And I mean, yeah. I commend you for just having that type of thought mm-hmm. process when you're looking at new hires. Well, there's so many little things I think that can affect that. And you, when you talk about first steps and I think a good place to start is what little decisions are you making that can affect that? And for me, an easy area was unpaid internships, right? Who can have an unpaid internship is very, generally a pretty biased thing, right? So yeah. um, I, I feel like there's a lot of little decisions when you're doing this type of thing and bringing people into your organization, who's representing your organization, who's going out there. Like there's so many little changes that I think are good starting points opposed to people, you know, doing so something that they feel is a lot more drastic. I love that example, Jim. Honestly, I love that example so Mm. much, right? You're spot on. Who can take an unpaid internship? Well, I can tell you this. I was one of those students that wouldn't, would not have been able right. to do that. I needed to make a, a paycheck in order to pay for school. If I yeah. tried to take an unpaid internship, that's yeah. time I couldn't use. And yeah, there may be the, the benefit of the experience, but right. unless I was getting it paid for, yeah. there was no way for me to be able to succeed that way. So you yes, that's experience. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's yeah. great that you're looking at it from that angle, man. And that's a, that's a really, really important piece. Well, to think I about. think it gets to one of the points we touched on before is not only is it the right thing to do, but you're, if you pay someone, you're going to get, you're going to get better work. Like they're going to do a better job too. And quite frankly, you as an organization take it more seriously. So, yeah. you know, obviously there are a lot of altruistic reasons to get involved in so much of this that's going on in the world right now, but I think it is important that we're organizations that are for-profit businesses. So like, let's figure out a way to also do it that aligns with our goals. Cause when you do that, it's going to stick. Right. Mm-hmm. I agree with that hundred yeah. percent. That's a great, great viewpoint. Great thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think it matters from so many different angles, yeah. bringing new people into the industry. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, when you think about it, uh, I'm in my early forties really, I'm still one of the young people yeah. in this industry. That's a terrible thing to say. Yeah. That's, as far as my opinion matters, that's a terrible thing to say. Yeah. I'm 40 something and I'm still one of the young people in this industry. Well, then I blame myself and everybody else for not making sure there are more 20 somethings and 30 somethings that are in this industry. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Um... And then what little things do you feel can be done to do that though, too, in terms of getting more young people into the industry um, or just the small changes, you know, like I mentioned with the unpaid internships, what are the types of things you've looked at on your end um, to kind of move the needle? You know, I did a demo with a company called Way Up not too long ago, and uh, Mm -hmm. they have some uh, strategic ways to target uh, college campuses. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a great option. Uh, you're finding graduates that come in that register with companies like that, and then they're able to uh, send those those resumes to you. So you can start to do things like that. You can you can actually uh, maybe work with some of the local groups. For instance, uh, in the mortgage industry, you know we have uh, Namba and Tony Thompson's mm-hmm. team over there. Great efforts, and I love what they're doing. And mm-hmm. that goal they have to get uh, you know a certain number of uh, young people into the industry by 2025, I believe it is. Mm-hmm. that that's that's great that's the type of thing we need to be doing from 
all angles, you know, yeah. if you remember, I want to say 20, 30 years ago, there was uh, the program when I came out of college, there was a program with American Express where you go into the management program and, mm-hmm. you know, you, you'd work well at City. When I was at City years ago, we had this thing called the mortgage associate program, and it allowed a, a person to come into the company and maybe spend, you know, six months in different roles of mortgage processing, mortgage closing. Mm-hmm. And then we would let that person pick what they thought was the best right. thing for them. Um, yeah, maybe there are tweaks to be made now that I've learned so much over the last 20 years, but I think conceptually it was a yeah. unbelievably one of the best ideas I've come across. And do you feel like mortgage companies do the opposite where they just say you're in this department and you're going to do this very specific thing? Yeah, well, think about it. You know, right mm-hmm. now there's so much demand for underwriters and processors and the pay is going up and up and up in order mm-hmm. to, you know, satisfy that demand. And, and honestly, whether you're a mortgage company or a title company, whatever you are, you need to be looking at how do we train more college grads and mm-hmm. more um, just young people, you know, you know, you don't have to go to college, but you know, um, how do we train those people to get into um, roles in the mortgage industry? How do we make mm-hmm. it so that they think there is a career here? There mm-hmm. is something that they want to be a part of. I came from a fintech company before I came to this company and that fintech lender, there were so many perks from a millennial standpoint that at mm-hmm. first when I got there, I was kind of like, wow, it's like a, it's like a party in here. Mm-hmm. But, you know, looking at it five, six years later, I can see what the benefit was and why people want to be in that atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's very important to think of those types of things when you're offering something to employees and the benefits. And um, I was talking to someone about the need to have an employee retirement plan. Um, and the co- answer I got was, no one's going to retire while they're working at your company. So you don't need to offer a retirement plan. Hmm. And I was like, well, I don't think that's the point, right? Like it was okay. just kind of one of those things where, you know, it's like, so I think, you know, those benefits and those perks, obviously, you know, they can be viewed, especially by older generations as something like, oh, like that's not, you don't need to do that. But you think of the competitive advantage, you want to retain talent, you know, there are things that have that positive ROI from it. There's, there's a company that I, that I uh, talk to the president every once in a mm-hmm. while. Um, and uh, they're based up in uh, the Midwest, uh, mm-hmm. up north. They have a really cool concept. They've got video games and all kinds of yeah. things where you can take a break and go do, you know, what you need to do to just reset your mind. Um, and I'm not talking about just like, you know, uh, a Nintendo over there or a, or a PlayStation yeah. or something. Mm-hmm. I, I said Nintendo. Wow. Uh, but um, <laughs> I was but, nodding. I followed you. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they're the virtual stations where you can play a video game in VR. Right. And I mean, it's pretty cool. Well, then you think of, too, what's going to be the the new version of that now with people working remotely or at home or more flexible schedules or, or things like that. Like, how are you going to adapt, especially in industry like the mortgage industry, which is probably going to be pretty slow to adapt? Yeah, I mean, if history serves at all, yeah. the mortgage industry is slow to adapt to everything, right? Yeah. So I think that's really going to rely on people who are... Uh, you know, our human resources groups, mm-hmm. we need to partner with them fully to make sure that we're helping to drive what uh, workers want right now. And if 
it's going to be interesting, right? Once everybody's uh, in a, in a vaccinated space and, right. you know, maybe some companies are saying we may never have people come back or that's the new normal or whatever people are saying, there's always going to be other companies that say we want to have people back in. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how the leadership out there really makes this work. I think there are some really cool options if you marry things like what my previous fintech employer was doing with what uh, you know other mortgage companies that are not fintech mortgage companies that may not be looking at that millennial base of employee are doing, right? There is definitely a marriage there. Maybe we change the floor plans a bit to be more conducive to other things other than just sitting in your cubicle and, right. and working. So. Well, then I think it's important to figure out where your employees are, because there's plenty of people who probably want to be back in an office right now and plenty of people who don't. So you have to be more flexible in that regard. The thing that I always find interesting, too, is while a lot of people in any industry, but we're going to pick on the mortgage industry here, um, may not want to work with millennials or work with the younger generation and will say you know, certain things about how hard or easy they are to work with. They all want to sell to them, right? And like those are the people who are going to be buying homes, first-time home buyers right now. So I think you know you talked about your previous employer, who I think a big part of the reason when people want a more younger base is who better to sell to that younger base than people right around their same age. Yeah, I agree with that a hundred percent. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, there's probably a purchase storm coming sometime soon. Yeah. The largest group of millennials is, Mm -hmm. I think they're 29, 30 years old and peak buying age is 32, 33. So yeah, yeah, I think a lot of people are expecting one thing. And I have an opinion that because of this millennial cohort age group that we may see a push on purchases rather than, you know, what some people are uh, thinking may be a slowdown. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, there's of course you know, supply, which is going to be a a slowdown issue. But outside of that, I, I, you know, when you're talking about millennials and buying, yeah, you want to have the group of people working for you so that you can have that uh, capability of relating to Mm -hmm. the the customer base. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good segue to kind of our our final topic when you talk about looking forward, um, especially with the, with the purchase market and, it seems like a great solution to the supply problem is, will someone build more houses, right? And like, sure enough, you know, you, you're sitting there um, at one of the largest home builders in the country. So how do you feel um, home builders are looking at what's coming, um, especially when people are reluctant to move out of their current house? So where resale is a lot more unlikely than new home builds. It's actually interesting, right? So I think you're seeing a lot of resale uh, get pulled off the market. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know why. I, I can't really tell you why people are pulling it off market. I'm sure there's a bunch of reasons. Right. But from a new home construction standpoint, I know that uh, the National Association of Home Builders released some information over the last couple of days, right? Mm-hmm. So their Q4 2020 surveys showed that um, about 27% of millennials are still planning on buying a home in the next 12 months. That's actually up from 19% same time last year, right? Oh, wow. So that's an interesting yeah. statistic to kind of say to yourself, all right, well, there's still, there's still room here, right? Also, when you think about um, credit availability, a lot of first-time homebuyers use things like an FHA first-time homebuyer program. Well, government business on the credit availability index has actually 
uh, increase slightly. Mm -hmm. So that bodes well for the purchase market as, uh, you know, as a whole. So that's really good, right? First time home buyers using that FHA type program, mm -hmm. that's going to be a really good thing. It just means that credit standards are loosening for those types of programs. And that means mm -hmm. you can still get more people in there, right? Uh, mm -hmm. I think also another really interesting fact on the same or, or on the opposite side, same coin, um, the National Home Builders Association or National Association of Home Builders uh, also released a graph. They called it the pyramid or something. And I read it the other day mm -hmm. where they said about 21 million people in the U.S. Uh, can't afford to buy a hundred thousand dollar home. Right. So mm -hmm. now the focus becomes um, people who are making X amount of dollars or more. So there's a lot of ways to go about right. um, keeping that purchase market moving forward. But, you know, there are hurdles and, you know, lumber mm -hmm. costs. That's something we all hear about in the news yeah. regular basis. Right. They've definitely increased quite a bit. Mm -hmm. I think uh, in some article I read the other day, they tied that to the tariffs that were created mm -hmm. in 2017 and kind of spurred or grew from right. there. And so, you know, demand is high. Supply is low. I think that supply piece will remain in place. So demand will continue to be there. And um, I honestly think that uh, we're going to see a good market for, mm -hmm. for probably another 18 months without mm -hmm. any real mm -hmm. hangups. I mean, here's hoping. Um, do you yeah. feel like home builders are, are doing things to be intentional about building homes that that type of group, especially the first time home buyers want to buy? Or is it different? If, if lumber costs this much, let me build a larger home. Do you feel like companies are, are trying to match that supply to the people they want to build homes? So I think, a lot, of, homes? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people that build homes, and th this is from my own home buying experience, right. has nothing to do with my company. Mm -hmm. But from my own home buying experience, I find that uh, you know, some home builders have much more or, or better price points for first time home buyers. Uh, the homes might be smaller. Um, homes might be a little different, but I think they're all doing a good job at bringing technology to the forefront, mm -hmm. bringing uh, health to the forefront. And I think from a millennial first-time homebuyer perspective, mm -hmm. those things are really important, right? I, I want the nest. I want the, the, yeah. the ring doorbell. I want the HEPA filter that, mm -hmm. you know, is 99.9%. I want all of those things as a millennial buyer. And I think, whether you're this income bracket or that income bracket as a millennial, uh, there is somebody building a home for you somewhere. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, that's, I mean, let, let's hope that that supply is able to keep up, you know, and, and we can see kind of strong things to come. Think about it this way. I think mm -hmm. uh, these tariffs are probably going to be reversed or something of that nature yeah. or, or lifted or changed. Mm -hmm. And I think, so if I, if I remember the article correctly, the tariff was actually on softwoods coming from Canada, right? So mm. that's where the tariff got put in place in 2017. It mm. grew from there. So I think that if we can lift that tariff or change that tariff or change whatever that is, then I think we can start to see that lumber cost kind of um, right. either reduce or level out or whatever it is. And then naturally mm. that will help the supply and help to even out the, yeah. uh, the buying experience, you know? The, um, I, 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 did, I wasn't aware of the, the lumber tariffs and the effect on that. Um, the only tariff news I saw was last week that UK was actually, um, they were going to be lifting the tar tariffs on UK whiskey. Um, so to your point <laughs> about that, McAllen is going to get a little bit cheaper, which is, which is going to be good uh, going forward. So I was, was happy to see that. But 
One of the things to your um, point about tariffs um, that I really find fascinating endlessly about this industry is so many things can touch it. You know, we're talking about international trade. We're talking about consumer buying habits, demographics. Um, and we didn't even get into technology right now. Like, and that's also, you know, we're going to have to do that next time. But um, what do you feel is the thing that kind of gets you going and like gets you up in the morning about this industry? Um, so I'll tell you this. It's not technology. It's not mm -hmm. DEI. It's not any of that that gets me up. It's not even mortgages that gets me up. Mm -hmm. if, if I had, if I had uh, one thing that makes me mm -hmm. get up every morning, it's, it's my team's. It's the mm -hmm. people that work on those teams. I, I run five different areas of uh, mm -hmm. my company, right? It's appraisal, compliance, mm -hmm. quality control, training and education, and disclosure. Mm -hmm. And so even though there is a relevance to all five of those or a relationship between all five of those, um, it's the people that work in those groups that really get me to get up in the morning. It's mm -hmm. the capability of saying, hey, I can coach someone. I can help mold mm -hmm. someone. I can help grow their career. Yeah. I can help them learn about how to get to the next step. Because going back to that DEI piece, if I don't help the manager who's 30 something really grow and strive and become the next thing that they wanna become, then they leave the industry and go right. be a manager of something else. Because management's a skill that you can transfer. Yeah. Um, maybe disclosures is not a skill you can transfer to another industry, but managing yeah. a group of people, you can. And if you're not getting that with uh, your company, you're going to get up and go somewhere else. And, right. you know, I strive to make sure that my people are getting that from me and that they're giving that to yeah. their people. What's the old saying? People don't leave companies, they leave managers. That's right. I've That's certainly right. found that to be true. Well, we're, we're up on our time here. Thank you so much for coming on. We had a lot, a lot that we covered. This was really fun. Is there anything you want to plug or anything you want to, where people can find you? I know you're pretty prolific on LinkedIn. So I do want people to check that out. No, no, nothing that I want to plug man. but yeah, yeah. absolutely. When, mm -hmm. uh, you know, when you post this or, uh, wherever yeah. you post this, you know, I'll, I'll make sure to share it on LinkedIn and, uh, I'm just happy that you, uh, yeah, you had me come on and I really appreciated that. That was cool. I, I you know, I got the chance to listen to some of your, uh, podcasts and, and it, you're doing great, man. Keep it up. And, thanks. uh, yeah, hopefully one day I'll come back on. Yeah, no, absolutely. We'd love to have you again. Well, thanks a lot, Roy. Thanks for coming thanks on. Thanks a lot. Bye, have Jim. Have a great day. Bye. Thanks for listening to Lodestar's Lending Leaders. Please like, and subscribe wherever you get this podcast. If you have any ideas for upcoming episodes or would like to be a guest, please reach out to us at lendingleaders at lssoftwaresolutions.com. Hope to hear from you.